Good morning, everyone. Please take your Bibles, your copy of God's Word, and turn with me to Ezra chapter 3. I imagine that I am not alone when I tell you that sometimes I get really excited about something only to, within a few minutes or a few hours or a few days, sometimes a few months or a few years, lose all the excitement and get discouraged. Am I all alone in that? I thought so. See, you weren't supposed to raise your hand. That was planned. I'm going to start asking questions where you don't have to raise your hand. You see, we all can get excited about things, and then it seems that it wears away. Why? Well, there's lots of reasons for it. But let me encourage you in something. If we know that God wants us to do something, we can be excited about it. But you know what often happens? Reasons come along that steal our excitement. And they're very real reasons. Um, and it can be a sad thing. So sad that we stop doing what we know God wants us to do. Well, in the history that Ezra recorded in Ezra chapter 3, we see the people of Israel excited about something God has wanted them to do. And they're finally doing it. And almost as soon as they begin, there's discouragement. Almost immediately. And it doesn't stop. It keeps going. I'm going to tell you ahead of the story. I tell you sometimes I don't like doing that. But in order for us to set the context and understand it, we need to do a little bit of review and know ahead of the story. The history in Ezra, the first part of the history is, is that the nation of Israel has been in captivity for 70 years. Cyrus, the king of Persia, has issued a decree. You can go back and you can rebuild your temple. In fact, he gave them the treasures of the temple to take back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And so 50,000, almost 50,000 people go back to the ruins of Jerusalem. Hey, by the way, Shalom, did you decide to go back to China or the Netherlands? You're just going to stay right where you're at? Oh, okay, just check in. You know, about 70 plus years ago, her family moved both sides from one different parts of the world to this part of the world. Uh, just in follow-up to that, last week, you know, I had Joseph up here, and I was talking to Joseph and his mom over lunch. And as it turns out, the village that his grandparents are from in Kenya does not exist it has totally been overgrown and is in ruins. It's just totally been taken over. And so some of the parallels of what was going on here to what his background would be is quite literal. So the 50,000 come back, and they're excited. They begin to make plans to rebuild the temple. They start collecting things, the wood and all of the things needed for this temple. It takes them seven months to prepare to lay this foundation for the temple. 
And then finally, in Ezra chapter 3, they lay the foundation of the temple. It's a great, wonderful, exciting day. And their plan is to complete and to build this temple. But if we can look again at our timeline, you see in 536 B.C. is when they all came back to the land. You see that over there? 536 B.C. But almost as soon as they started rebuilding the temple, they quit. We're going to talk about the reasons they quit. And they didn't finish the temple until 516 B.C. That's a long time. That's a long time. Why? Why was it delayed? Well, I believe there were providential reasons, but there were also reasons of fear, discouragement, and disobedience. And God had to reach the people for them to finish the job. Well, that's the whole story. But just for a moment here, imagine with me that 516 here on this timeline doesn't exist. All you know is that the temple is in ruins. All you know is that there's potentially no hope for the temple. What's going to happen? Well, let's look here. It took them seven months in chapter 3 to gather together the money to make the planning for the masons and the carpenters. That's in verse 7. All of their food that they traded with the people of Zidon and Tyre to bring the cedar trees down from Lebanon to Joppa. And all of this from the decree and the grant of King Cyrus. And then it tells us in verse 8, Ezra chapter 3, verse 8, Now in the second year of their coming into the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, began Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnants of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem. And then look at verse 9. It tells us that then stood up Joshua with his sons and his brethren and a group of other people and the Levites. And it tells us in verse 10 that when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel, their priestly garments, with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course and praising and giving thanks unto the Lord. There was celebration as this foundation was laid. They were praising and giving thanks unto the Lord. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little hint. This is where everything needs to start. Every job, every task we have needs to start here in giving thanks and praise unto the Lord. Why? Why can we give thanks and praise to the Lord? A little secret. Finish reading the verse. Ezra. Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3 in verse 11. They sang together by course, in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord. Why? Why? Because the Lord is good. That's right. Any other reason? 
His mercy endureth forever here toward Israel. You know, both of those reasons are not just toward Israel. They're still good today. No matter what we're facing, no matter what job we've got to do, we can praise and give thanks to God because he is good and because his mercy endures forever and ever and ever. And so you know what all the people are doing? They're celebrating and they're shouting for joy. They're rejoicing. The temple is being built. And it tells us that all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Everybody shouting. Or is everybody? Because you see, there were a few people, old guys, who were crying. Guys like Mr. Tolosa's age. Oh, did I... Not just these guys who saw the first temple. I didn't say anything about being old. <laughs> these guys who saw the first temple had seen it before. Here they are, and they're crying. Why? Well, because they had seen Solomon's temple, and they're looking here at what they've gathered together to build this temple. It's as nothing. I mean, Solomon's temple had cedars from Lebanon, but, like, there's no way they're going to make it as beautiful and as amazing as the temple that Solomon had built. They just know it. And so they're weeping, for it tells us that many of the priests and the Levites and the chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, they wept with a loud voice. Many shouted for joy. Why were they weeping? Because, well, we don't give given an exact answer here. But you know who gives us the answer? Haggai. You ever heard of Haggai? Haggai was a prophet in this same time. Well, not quite this time, a few years later. And he acknowledges that the reason everybody was so, or not everybody, but these older men were so sad is because what they were seeing now, it literally says, was as nothing compared to what it had been. It was as if it was nothing. Now, here I got a question. You ever excited about doing something? And you start rejoicing and moving forward and doing it? How do you respond when you find people crying? Oh. Now, a little hint, I don't think there was anything wrong with them crying. But how do you respond to it? Here, these people, they kept going. But right from the beginning, there was a negative, well, you ever heard of a wet blanket? A wet blanket right on it from the beginning. But it's not over. All of this crying and rejoicing. You couldn't tell the difference of it, but they kept on the work. And we turn the page to chapter 4, and we read this. Now, when the adversaries... Uh-oh! 
You ever been excited about something and then met the adversaries? Who are the adversaries? Well, these are the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. And they hear that the children of the captivity were building the temple unto the Lord God of Israel. Adversaries are people who are kind of like enemies, and they will fight against you. And here we find adversaries. Adversaries. Did you know what? We have adversaries. Sometimes our very adversary is our own flesh. Other times, it's Satan, the devil, and his legions. Other times, it is other people who are causing us trouble. Adversaries. We all have adversaries. Did you know that if God wants you to do something, it's very likely that you're going to face adversaries just like that, and no matter what. Let me show you something in the New Testament. Let's do, let's do a sword drill here. I'm going to give you a reference, and you repeat it after me, and then put your Bibles up in the air and go to it, all right? When you get there, you're going to hear the Apostle Paul speaking. Here's the reference. 1 Corinthians 16.9. Can you say it? 1 Corinthians 16.9. Charge! When you get it, stand up and just read it out loud for everyone to hear. Oh my, did you all hear that? Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, there is a great and effectual door that's opened unto me. That means he has opportunity to do great things for God, effective things for God, and great things for God. I do better without the last sentence. How about you? Right? And there are many adversaries. See, Ezra is no different. Well, it's not Ezra. It's actually Zerubbabel and recorded by Ezra. Zerubbabel is no different than the Apostle Paul, who is no different than you and me. When there is something God wants us to do, you can count on it. There are adversaries. There are adversaries. And what are we going to do about these adversaries? Well, they were a big problem in Ephesus, which is what, what Paul is writing here from. In fact, he talks about some of the people. I think they were people as if they were brute beasts he was having to deal with in Ephesus. Whether or not they were literal beasts that they wanted to feed them to, or the people were acting like beasts, we're not quite sure. People debate it. But nonetheless, they were adversaries like they were beasts, wild beasts wanting to devour him. And you know, it hasn't changed. In fact, there's a good question for us to ask ourselves that if we don't have adversaries, hmm, are we actually doing what God wants us to be doing? For Paul also wrote to Timothy, who was at Ephesus, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Paul also wrote to the Ephesians that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities. Isn't that interesting? All these adversaries we're looking at, we oftentimes see the flesh and blood, but the real truth of the matter is, it's not the flesh and blood we see. For there are principalities and powers. We are in a spiritual war with the principalities and powers of Satan. It's a big deal. We have adversaries. We are in a battle. And it's really important, I believe, for us to just like Paul acknowledge it and just like Ezra did for Zerubbabel, acknowledge that there are many adversaries. And what do these adversaries do? Well, it's interesting that if we look down through this, we find different strategies of these adversaries. I'll give you a summary of what they do. You know what the first thing they do is? They come along and say, we're here to help. You say, that doesn't sound like an adversary. Mmm, that's the whole point. They come along and say, we're here to help. That doesn't work. So you know what their second strategy is? Is to weaken you and to tear you down, as it's recorded here by Ezra, trouble you discourage you. That's what happens in chapter 4 and verse 4. And then, you know what oftentimes they do? They begin to accuse you. And that's what's going on here with Zerubbabel too. Here he has adversaries, and they try these different strategies. Let's look at these strategies. It starts here, for it tells us, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, this great door of effectual working of God, they hear about it. So they've got a plan. They come to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers, and they say unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Urhadon, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. Does that sound like a wonderful thing? That doesn't sound like an adversary. Does it sound like an adversary to you? Well, you need a little more information if you're going to identify it as an adversary. Because at face value, it sounds good. We want all the help we can get. We've got a big, great, big job to do in building this temple. We need lots of help. So these guys, yes, yes, we want you to help us. Right? So then why, in verse 3, does Zerubbabel and Joshua, so Zerubbabel is the prince and Joshua is the high priest, and the rest of the chief of the fathers say to them, quote, Ye have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God. But we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, hath commanded us. Now you might be sitting there thinking, what's wrong with these people? Here these guys show up, offer to help, and Zerubbabel, the prince, and Joshua, the high priest, and all the chief of the fathers say, you have nothing to do with us. Well, wait a minute. Maybe you're one of those guys just sitting watching this and going, hmm? These people said that, let us build with you. They said, for we seek your God as ye do, and we do sacrifice unto him. 
That sounds like a great group of people to help build a temple, right? Hmm. Some of you have no idea what the big deal is here because you're looking at it and it probably doesn't make sense to you. And if we look only at Ezra, it may not make sense to us either. So what's the background here? What's going on? Well, there's a little hint about it as to when these people say they've been serving their God. And we have to go back to 2 Kings to learn about it. In 2 Kings chapter 17, we learn about these people. Do you know who they were in the days of Jesus? They were called the Samaritans. Does that sound familiar? In the days of Jesus, they were called the Samaritans. So why did, way back here, even 400 years before Jesus, why did Zerubbabel, why did Joshua, and why did the high priest say, no, you have nothing to do with us? Here's the big problem. You see, God wants real worship. God wants true worship. God wants genuine worship. And he is jealous. He is the only one. No other idols in your hearts and no other idols on your shelves. He is the only one that is God, and he wants to stay the only one as God. These people were correct in saying that they worship and served Jehovah. They just didn't do it Jehovah's way. What these people did is they took all the idols of the ancient Canaanites and all the idols from all of the lands that Assyria had conquered. And they set up idols for every god. Every idol. They worshipped all gods. And so that's why Zerubbabel and Joshua and the chief of the fathers say, you have nothing to do with us. Part of what's going on here is that what has gotten Judah in trouble, why they've been in captivity for 70 years, is because they were mixing their religion with other gods. And the whole point of what they're doing very courageously is that Zerubbabel and Joshua are saying, no, we're not doing that again, because all that did was get us in trouble. We're going to worship God alone. He's the only God. And over in 2 Kings, it tells us in chapter 17 that the king of Assyria, he brought people from all over his conquered empire, and he implanted them in Israel instead of the children of Israel. So they began to intermarry, and they began to create this, this very diverse race. But it was also very diverse in idolatry, worshiping of idols. And how do we know that? If you look here in verse 32 of 2 Kings 17, verse 32, it says, So, listen, they feared the Lord, that's Jehovah, all caps, and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places, which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord, all caps, Jehovah, and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. Unto this day they do after their former manners, they fear not the Lord. Neither do they after their statutes 
or after their ordinance or after the law and commandment which the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, Ye shall not fear other gods, nor bow yourselves to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice them to them. But the Lord, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, with great power and a stretched out arm, him shall ye fear, and him shall ye worship, and to him shall ye do sacrifice. And it just continues on. But these adversaries come along and they say, we want to help. Do you know what their goal was? Their goal was to bring the idolatry of all their pagan religions and mix it right in with the worship of Jehovah. And so some people back then and even today say, well, we want to accept all the help we can get, right? But not without compromising the true worship and way of Jehovah. You see here, it says that they feared the Lord. They feared the Lord. And then it says they did not fear the Lord. You see, they had invented a false worship. And that's why Zerubbabel and Joshua and the chief of the fathers said, you have nothing to do with us. Did you know that this truth is also taught to us in the church? We have to be careful of this. We have to be careful. In 2 Corinthians, it tells us that we must not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And you know, today, there are actually major, massive organizations that take interfaith, do you hear that? Interfaith doctrines and say, we just all need to work together, loving each other. Now, we got to be careful about how strict we get about it, but oh my, how much better for us to be careful and to err on the right side, for in the extreme... It's outright perversion. We stand separate. We have to. We must. That's the situation that was going on in Ezra, and it's still going on, and it's real in the church today. Somebody comes along and says, I'm here to help. Are they? One of the most interesting situations I've ever found myself in is going to the faith fair at the University of Notre Dame. We can invite it almost every year to go to the faith fair at the University of Notre Dame, and it's one of the most unique situations. The reason I can go is because actually there's a distinction between all of the groups. We all get our own little booth. And so we go there as this church, and we're able to be there. This year, we got, well, I won't say all the groups that were right around us, but it was kind of interesting of who was right around us. And what was the reason why I could participate in it is because there was a distinction. But there were a few who would come up to me and say different comments about how, well, we're all here for the good of people. And, and I mean, we're, we're talking about not just the different denominations of Christianity are here. We have the Hindus and the Buddhists and the, the, um, the Baha'ists, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on of the different groups who were there. And um, it was, it was, it's a unique situation, but yet you have to stand there and you have to engage and say, we are proclaiming the truth of the gospel.
different people would come up and say, so what makes you different than da 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 Most of the time they're talking about Christian peoples. And they, what's the answer? Well, the answer is kind of just like Zerubbabel's answer. We believe the Bible is the Word of God. And we follow Jesus Christ, His gospel, His truth. This is our standard. No other creed, no other textbook. This is the Word of God, our, our guide. And you give the gospel. Christ died for the sins of all people, was buried and rose again, the good news. So do we work together? Well, there's some people that we need to work together. You know, we have some churches even in this town. We need to work together. For we have a common faith and a common doctrine according to the Word of God. But when there is differences, and some of them are quite stark, we have to be like Zerubbabel, and we have to say, you have nothing to do with us. We're worshiping God. So these adversaries, they tried starting by helping them to compromise. Then that didn't work. So what did they do in verse 4? Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. Many believe, and if we understand the context of all what's going on here, this weakening is a discouragement. Just a drip, drip, constant trouble, trouble, trouble that weakens the hands of the people and troubles them. Let's be on a guard for that and watch for it and not let it trouble us. Well, it goes on. It says, then they hired consulars against them to frustrate their purpose. And you know what? It didn't just happen once. It happened all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even into the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And we get a summary of all kinds of details here that are going on, and it all lots of letters and details and accusations. They're trying to build the temple, and the accusation comes to the leaders that they're trying to build the walls. There's the accusation that this people, go check your records, check it out. This is a rebellious people. You don't want them building up. You don't want them finding a place here in this kingdom. Why, this is still part of your providence. If you let these people do what they're doing and keep continuing what they're doing, you'll have nothing on this side of the Euphrates. You'll lose all what you have. And so, all this trouble comes. And we don't have time to read through it all together, but you read it. So much here. What's the conclusion of it? Well, there was an order issued to make the Jews to cease building by force and by power. And so, they quit. They quit. They quit. They quit doing what God wanted them to do. They stood strong at the beginning, even when there was weeping, they stood strong even when there was attempts to compromise. But then they were weakened. They were troubled. And then they were ordered to stop. And instead of obeying God, they just quit. They just quit. Now, Faith, can you come up here? 
she's not sure she wants to come up here. Faith had a birthday yesterday. How old are you, Faith? 14. She's now 14. Can you believe that? Imagine with me to set a time frame here that Faith was born in 536 B.C. Was born the year that all of the exiles came back to the land. She's a little baby. Can you imagine that with me? And it was within her first year, we started the temple, we laid the foundation, and we quit. And so for the past 14 years, we've just been building our own houses, trying to survive in the ruins, build our families, our kids grow up. Time goes by like that, right? And the temple stays in ruins. Some of you remember when she was born, don't you? Now imagine with me that time period. And the temple lays in ruin. Actually, for yet a whole nother year. And it took some preachers to come along and say, back to work. You know what their names were? Haggai and Zechariah. And boy, are their preaching interesting. We're going to look at some one of their sermons this morning. Um, in the morning service. Thank you, Faith. You know what I call it? The three-word sermon. You know, are you excited about something God wants you to do? Don't wait 14 years to hear the three-word sermon. Don't wait 14 years to obey the three-word sermon. Do you know what it is? You're going to have to wait. You might be able to figure it out. But what are the three words that they all needed here? Well, this message is to be continued because we need to hear that sermon. But let's look at the background of that sermon right now. Chapter 5. Well, let's look at verse 24 of chapter 4. Then ceased... The work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased into the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia, 520 BC, 15 years. Then the prophets Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. And then rose up Zerubbabel and Joshua and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, with them were the prophets of God helping them. There were still problems. There were still problems. There were still problems. The adversaries didn't go away. Well, it seemed like they maybe did for a little bit, but now they start back to work, and bang, they're there again. They're there again. At the same time came to them Tantani, governor on this side of the river, and Shethabozani, and their companions, lovely adversaries, and they said thus unto them, Who hath commanded you to build this house and to make up this wall? 
Then said we unto them after this manner, What are the names of the men that make this building? We're going to come back to that. Look at verse 5. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews that they could not cause them to cease. Did you hear that? What's your job today that God wants you to do? Today. Is there something he wants you to do today that's hard? Is there something you know he wants you to do tomorrow, this week, that's hard? Even your own flesh says, yeah, no, that's too hard. Or you have adversaries that trouble you. Or you get discouraged. Will you believe this truth? That the eye of your God is upon you? You know, this doesn't mean that he's just sitting there watching you. This means that he sees and he's doing something about it. It's just like back in Genesis where we got introduced to God by this name, Jehovah Jireh. You know that name has been translated in two different ways. The first is the Lord who sees. The Lord who sees. But do you know what the other way it's translated as? Anybody know? What's another way it's translated? The Lord who provides. You see, the whole point is, is that if God sees, he's going to do something about it. If God sees, he's going to do something about it. And so here, the eye of their God was upon the elders. The eye of God is upon you. So that there is no one or nothing that can cause you to cease from doing what God wants you to do. So, obey. Obey. Believe in your God. I'm going to give you the three-word sermon. It's this. God with me. We're going to talk more about that later. Think about it. God with me. That's the only sermon you need to live this life. God with me. Heavenly Father, we bow to you in prayer. You have a task for us. You have a mission for us. You have given to us a great commission. You have given to us commands. Restore to us the great joy we need to obey. May we see you as our strength. May we know that your eye is upon us. May we know that you are with us. May we believe that it is not by might nor by power, but by your Spirit. Fill us with your Spirit and help us to do what you want us to do.
Give us wisdom in our prioritization. There are so many important things in life, and yet we are troubled and we are weakened because of all of the flashy things that are laid out before us to distract us from what's really important. May the fact that you see, the fact that you're with us, help us in our priority. Help us to do what you want us to do. Help us to be like Zerubbabel in that we do what's right. And help us also to be like Zerubbabel that even when we have become discouraged and quit, we will get up again in your strength and power to do what you want us to do. Thank you that even in the midst of our failures, you stand ready to encourage us, to motivate us to get up and to do what is right. We need your help this day. We need your strength and your power. We pray in your name. Amen.